Dear God, even though the events of 9-11 took place long ago, most of us can still recall them like it was yesterday. Some, more than others, are still feeling the effects and the pain. On this day, we remember all those who lost their lives and their loved ones to this terrible tragedy. We lift up their families and their friends and ask for strength, peace, and comfort. We also remember and honor those heroes who stepped in to help, to save, to serve. And we will never forget those who gave their lives for the noble cause of rescuing others. We are forever grateful and pray blessing and comfort over their families. We pray for the spirit of unity to revisit our nation. The unity we felt in the midst of our struggles and our confusion. We pray that our citizens would look to God for wisdom and guidance, just as many did during that time of uncertainty. But most of all, we pray for the swift return of our Savior, who will one day put an end to all tragedies and to all tears. We love you. And we pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We open our service this morning to remember September 11. It is a very dangerous thing when a nation forgets national tragedies. When you travel to Israel and you head up into Jerusalem, you'll see alongside the road uh, tanks and military vehicles that are intentionally left there. As a reminder, never again and to never forget. We are so far away from September 11, 2001, that we have a whole generation that have been birthed and lived outside of that. And there is a tendency to forget. We should never forget that. Those that gave their life in, in, in such a tragedy and to rescue for others. And it's just an amazing thing. So I want to stop and, and just pray this morning for those that, uh, that are grieving, but also for our nation. And, and pray for our government. And pray for the return of the Lord Jesus, because we know that until He comes, wars will continue. Evil people will do evil things. And we will pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank You for this morning that we as Your church can gather in your name. We can trust in you in all things. We know that there have been wars ever since the fall of man. National tragedies have taken place both in our country and, and in Israel and with your people and personal tragedies. Lord, we think about those that have suffered such a great loss. Lives that were taken in Evil was reigning for a period of time. Lord, we pray that that evil would be brought to an end. And the only way that it will be brought to an end is for you to come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. But till that time, may your people that are called by your name continue the work that you've called us to do 
in making disciples and to answer the call that you've called upon us to go out. Lord, we, we thank you that we live in a nation today that has the freedom to worship you. Lord, may we enjoy that freedom and not, not lose sight of how valuable it is. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters that don't live in a country like ours. They don't have the freedom to gather. That don't have the freedom to be able to come into a room and open a Bible. We are truly blessed people. And it's from that place of blessing we come to you and we want to bless you and we want to be serving others. So Lord, we thank you for this time. We ask that you would go before us in this worship service in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome. Well, I'm going to pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our service and also on the offering as we continue to worship through giving as the ushers come forward and then through music and the study of God's Word. I'm excited about this morning's uh, message, answering the call. God, we thank you. We thank you that you have provided everything for us. And Lord, even as we worship today, we know that you're going to move in our hearts as you did with Paul and Barnabas while they were worshiping. You called them into ministry. Lord, we want to be those people that you call out, that, that we can go and we can serve. Father, we thank you for the provisions that you've given to us as a church and our families. And, and as an act of worship, we want to bring to you the first fruits of that which you've provided for us to be able to say, God, thank you. Thank you for all that you've given. And these resources go to support our missionaries, to support those that are in the field and doing the work and to help meet needs of people. Lord, we thank you for that privilege. Holy Spirit, we pray right now that you would fall afresh upon us, enhance our praise and worship, and may everything that happens this morning make you smile. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we serve a God who saves us. He is reign, ruling and reigning this morning, and as you give this morning, we're going to uh, start continue to worship as we worship through song and as avenues you have given you feel free to stand as we celebrate our awesome mighty god this morning
about it, how a God who rules the universe did everything that we just sang about. He rescued us from our life of hopelessness and despair, and he brought us into his kingdom. And now we can go right into the throne room of God. There's nothing hindering our path into God's presence. And so as we kind of just slow this down a little bit. I want you to picture as we're singing this song, we're already in the presence of God. But we're in the presence of a holy God who loves us deeply, but who is also still very holy. And we worship Him with all reverence and fear this morning. Holy, holy, holy. Yeah. 
to that day when you're going to return. Until then, we will continue to worship you, crown you as King of Kings here in this place. And with a thousand hallelujahs, we will continually lift our voice to give you honor and glory and majesty and honor. Who else would rocks cry out to worship? Whose glory talks and starts to shine? Perhaps creation longs to have the words to sing. But this joy is mine. With a thousand times.
thought that was good. Wait till you get to heaven. <laughs> Y'all don't sing half bad. That's pretty good. You would open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 13 as we continue in our study in Luke's account of the Acts of the Early Church and the work of the Holy Spirit. I want to read to you a quote. This quote's from Henry Martin. He was a missionary to India and to Persia. He says this, the spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. The nearer we get to him, the more intensely missionary we become. Think about that. I'll read it again. I want you to let these words soak. The spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. The nearer we get to him, the more intensely missionary we become. Who is the greatest missionary that ever existed? God. God is the greatest missionary that ever existed. Do you realize that when man fell, rebelled against God, fell into sin, that God became a missionary to man? That He would reach out to mankind, that he would go after the first two lost people that ever existed, Adam and Eve, two sinners. He was missional. In that, he was seeking to save the lost. We think about the focus of God and missions, and, and God's focus really has been missional ever since the fall of man. He's been reaching out to mankind to seek to save those that are lost in their sin, that those have been deceived. And as Christians, really, we are the benefactors of that mission, aren't we? We're God, because apart from God, we would never seek Him. He comes after us. If it wasn't for God, we would never come to know Him. And so, one of the things that we need to understand and recognize in having the mind of God is there are so many people that are lost 
that are walking in darkness that are deceived by Satan. And the whole role of, of Christian living is missional living and doing the work of Christ. We think about this truth that we have that is in us. It's a light. And that light needs to be brought into darkness. And then the darkness will flee. We are to bring the truth to people. To people that, quite frankly, if you don't bring the truth and the light of God's Word and the light of Jesus into their life, they're already in darkness. They'll remain in darkness. You say, well, Carrie, I'm concerned that they might think I'm weird. That's okay. I'll let you in on a secret. You're already weird anyway, so just deal with it. But the fact is, what's more important their salvation or an opinion? The ability to be able to come to those that are lost. You think about this whole concept. Jesus gave the commission to the church. It's pretty simple, isn't it? He said, go and what? Make disciples. Go make disciples, baptize them, train them. That's the commission. And... and when we think about the gospel, the gospel is meant to have feet. The gospel is not meant to sit on a shelf. Your Bible is not meant to sit, you know, just as a doorstop someplace. And the gospel is not meant just to sit in a chair inside of a church. It's meant to go out. In the context of your life, in the context of your community and those things that are there. The work of evangelism is a missional work. And it's a work that requires going out to the people, whatever that looks like, as I said, in the context of your life. And as we come to Acts chapter 13, that's exactly how the church grew. Now keep in mind, Luke is writing to Theophilus to give to him this explanation of how the church started and how it would grow. So that he would have this reason to believe, and you got to... You know, for us, we look backwards, but for the people of that time, they didn't understand how the church was growing. So he writes about how Paul and Barnabas were separated to be able to be the tip of the spear of evangelism. Can you imagine this new work, this new revelation that was going out with them? And their message was simple. It was the gospel message. And they were teachers. So what did they do as teachers? They would teach. And they were Greek-speaking Jews. So what would they do? They would go within the context of what they were equipped to do within that. What's interesting is we'll read as we journey now into the ministry of Paul and the mission of the church. And that'll be a greater part of the work of Acts that we'll be looking at. Paul's strategy was really different than Jesus's. When Jesus went out, he went where? Galilee. Where did he go? To the rural sections. Not Paul. Oh, no. He went to the urban sections. He went where all the people were. He went to the synagogues. This guy was a real go-getter. And he'd, find the, he'd go to the large cities. Now, again, as part of the backdrop, the church of Jerusalem, the Christian church of Jerusalem, is still the hub. So James, the brother of Jesus, is still presiding over the church of Jerusalem. The apostles are still in Jerusalem. But there's been this shift. And the shift is now there is this second center of mission work, and that's going to be in Antioch. And that is where we have last left Paul and Barnabas, where they spent the year teaching. And they're working in, in this area. 
and they're getting ready to send them out. So if you're interested to see how God sends and how God calls, you're going to find that out here. It's my hope that you'll understand God's calling in your life and how that, how that works. So let's stand as we read through our passage this morning. Acts 13, 1 through 12, a shorter section this morning. Because one of the challenges that we'll find in this, and there will be a challenge, is that when you become missional, that there is also going to be a little bit of confrontation. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12, it says, Now there were at Antioch in the church that there was the prophets and the teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Mannion, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went out to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they had reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. And this man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to, note, hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from faith. But Saul, who was known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, you are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. And then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened being amazed at this teaching of the Lord. May God bless the reading of His Word. You can be seated. So, verses 1 through 3, one of the things that we see that's significant is that it is God who calls, it's the Holy Spirit that directs. I've talked with people many times and they say, well, does God speak? And the answer is absolutely what? Yes. Well, I've never heard God speak. I've never heard the audible voice. I'll tell you what, if you hear an audible voice, be afraid. <laughs> I like the silent, quiet, inside voice. I'm thinking if I hear the audible voice, the big booming voice of God, something bad is going to happen really quick. As the church was gathering here, they were gathering in Antioch. And... Notice that as they are gathering in this place, there, there is an established set of leadership. Paul and Barnabas have been there for a year and establishing the church and teaching. And we're given by Luke actual offices that are part of the church structure. Churches should have structure. Churches should have positions. And those positions and structures should be divinely discerned and, and appointed by God in such a way that it is God saying, this is what I've equipped you to do, this is what you need to do. And we recognize that calling upon people. But not everybody is the same calling. There's differences. 
In fact, Paul in his letter to the church of Corinth would give some of those differences here. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 28 to 29. It says, And God appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps of administration, and various kinds of tongues. And all are not apostles, are they? The answer is no. Are all not prophets, are they? No. All are not teachers, are they? No. All are not workers of miracles, are they? No. In other words, there is a distinct difference between different callings and giftings. And not everybody has that same calling and gifting, which is a good thing. Why is it a good thing? Because the diversity of calling and equipping allows the church to be complete. To be able to minister to one to another within those needs. If I was to ask you this question right now, what is God's calling on your life? Could you answer that? Say, well, I don't know. You should know. You should know. Every Christ follower that has the Holy Spirit has at least one spiritual gift that they can exercise. And there is a calling that is placed upon your life upon salvation to go and to preach the gospel. You are all called to be missionaries, for sure. But there are some that are gifted in other areas. God has given me the ability to be able to study God's Word and teach. Others have gifts of hospitality, gifts of helps, where that's just where they thrive. And the whole body kind of comes together within those things. And if the body is functioning as it should in the sphere of the spirit-driven, God-given, declared gifts, then the body is firing on all four cylinders. Now, these leaders that were there were in this office called prophet-teacher. Now, what is it? Well, a prophet-teacher, keep in mind, they don't have the written word yet. So a prophet, when we take a look at Old Testament, he would speak on behalf of God and he would foretell the future. But the office of prophet or the gift of prophet can also foretell God's word. Now, we also know that there was a guy by the name of Agabus who was a prophet. And he, we already saw him. He prophesied once and he'll prophesy again. And so there were, at this time, prophets that would foretell the future. But you could be a prophet and not a teacher. But if you were a teacher, you were also probably a prophet within this. And it's, again, within the context of the Scripture there. Do we have modern-day prophets today? I would say that, that without putting God in a box, there are less modern-day prophets that are foretelling the future. And there are more prophet teachers that are foretelling God's Word. In other words, speaking on behalf of God and bringing that forward forward but i also do believe that there are those that have been given the prophecy the gift of prophecy from time to time to speak to these things and i know people that have done it and what we do with prophecy is this you you share with me something that god puts on your heart in that prophecy and and we accept it and we accept it by faith and we watch to see if god fulfills that prophecy and if he does then praise god but we don't go chasing it why because we have god's word that is here to guide us and the Holy Spirit. So while prophecy still exists today, and I do believe it does, teaching really is the premier gift in, in the professing and the teaching of God's Word. And we know these people to be teachers. We know Barnabas was a teacher. We've already covered Barnabas and Saul. We kind of know who they were. But these other three leaders, Simon called Niger. The word Niger is Latin. It means dark. 
So he was, it was a nickname that he was given. He was dark-skinned. Um, it is thought that Simon w- could be uh, connected to the Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene, and the, and the reason why some people believe that he was from Cyrene is because Lucius was also from Cyrene. And Cyrene is where Libya is, northern Africa. And so it is thought that, that these two, both Simon and Lucius, knew each other and that they were ministering there in the Metropolitan Church of Antioch that was there. And it, other than that, we really don't know anything about them. Um, but we know that they were spirit-led, spirit-appointed leaders within the church. Mannion is interesting because this guy Mannion actually grew up with Herod Agrippa. Or, I'm sorry, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is known, best known for doing what? Lopping off the head of John the Baptist. And so he was a foster brother. He grew up with him, but came to faith within that. And here we find him in the church also. That's there. But again, there's really no good historical documentation on these other three other than Paul and Barnabas. One of the things that we do know is that Paul and Barnabas were seen as the premier teachers in Acts 11.26. We covered that in Acts 12.6 within this. This whole option of, of teaching. The text says, while they were ministering to the Lord. Now it's interesting. How do you minister to the Lord? What does what ministry to the Lord look like? I mean, God's got everything. What is, what is, what is ministry to Him? The word ministry there, or ministering to the Lord, is, is an interesting word. Um, the word in Greek is leturija. And it's where we get our word liturgy from. We've been ministering to the Lord this morning. How have we been doing that? Through worship. Through prayer. Also ministering to the Lord is fasting. In other words, exhibiting spiritual devotion in relation to acknowledging who God is. That's ministering to the Lord. That's when God is smiling. When you are blessing Him. And so they were ministering to the Lord. They were fasting, they were praying, and they were worshiping. It's interesting that it says that they were fasting. Which tells us that their Jewish tradition of fasting had carried over into the Christian church. Is it okay to fast today? Absolutely. Should you fast as the Lord leads? Why do we fast? We fast, and what it really is, it's setting aside personal comforts or food or these things for the intentional purpose of prayer and seeking the Lord. I know people that have fasted from breakfast or fasted all day or, or, or fasted for a period of time. And Jesus does a whole teaching on fasting. That when you fast, don't let anybody know and don't walk around going, oh, I'm fasting. Look at me. I'm being spiritual. No. But the idea of fasting is to be able to seek the Lord. And so whether it was fasting or prayer or worship, this was a liturgy. Liturgy in our world today really means the structured function of worship. We have a liturgy. It's how we worship. So we open with a couple of songs, and then we do teaching, and we do prayer, and we do offering. That is a liturgy. High church will also have liturgy. So some of the Presbytery churches, some of the high churches, Lutheran churches, Catholic churches, they'll have liturgy. So liturgy liturgy just means order of service or order of worship. So don't get scared by it. It's not, not a bad thing. But what's interesting is... While they were ministering, the Holy Spirit spoke. 
You want to hear God speak? Spend time with Him. Spend time in worship. Spend time in prayer. Spend time in silence. Spiritual disciplines will enhance your relationship with God. When you set aside time, you say, I'm going to sit and I'm going to be silent before God. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to practice silence or I'm going to fast or whatever the case is going to be. This group of leaders were ministering to the Lord as was their practice and then the Holy Spirit spoke. When you've got things going on in your life, and you're saying, God, I really need to know what's going on. I need for you to show me. The best thing you can do is sit down and shut up and listen. Because God will speak to the heart that seeks Him. And He speaks through the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not told whether it was an audible or internal, but most likely it was an internal inclination. And it was this direction that spoke to the group and what's interesting to me also is it's the divine initiative. God initiated the calling for mission for Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas were going, okay, God, we got this idea. We think we need to go out on mission. We're going to fast and we're praying. We're going to see, God, will you agree with our decision? That is not what was going on. It was in the course of their worship that God was directing them. So many times we take our plans and our ideas and we get it all planned out the way that we think it needs to be done and we take it before God and we say, God, would you bless this mess? And God's like, I don't want you to do that, but I want it. No. A spirit-led life is one that waits for the Spirit to lead. And where the Spirit guides, the Spirit will provide. When God brings out His initiative, it always is going to be the best. And we need to pause and reflect on that. And if God is the great missionary, then mission is going to be part of that calling within that. And to, to be in that place. We know that Paul and Barnabas were called out, separated by the Holy Spirit. In fact, so much so that Paul would use that as an introduction to the church in Rome... Romans chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, that was by Jesus, set apart for the gospel of God by whom? The Holy Spirit. Set apart. God's called everyone to mission, and you're on mission. Keith Green, a Christian artist of, I think it was the 70s, long time ago. I think I was just a little kid at that time. I was, don't laugh. He said this though, I thought it was a pretty, pretty neat quote. This generation of Christians is responsible for the generation of souls on the earth. That's a powerful quote. This generation, that means you, are responsible for the souls on earth at this time. Why? Because you are missionaries. And you are called to be on mission. And so... The Holy Spirit leads the church of Antioch based on God's divine prerogative to send them out. But verse 3 adds something that I think is super important. Verse 3 adds this. He says, And then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, then they sent them away. Who's the they? That would be the congregation. 
the leadership heard from the Holy Spirit, given direction. They took it to the congregation, and the congregation then fasted and prayed more over that, and then they all laid hands on them. It is not a passage that supports ordination, but confirmation and affirmation. What does that mean? It means that the whole church body of Antioch had gathered around these two and said, we are with you in this. We are going out with you. We are joining ourselves to that work. Missionaries are never meant to be lone rangers. Missionaries are part of a home fellowship, home group, home body that is supporting them. They are the extension of the church. We as a church, we have a number of missionaries. In fact, I would encourage you in the lobby, there is a sign up for you to join the missions committee where we get together once a month and we pray over missionaries and we plan on how we can support our missionaries that are out there and who we pick up as supporting missionaries and such. And I would encourage you to become part of that. We're looking at different opportunities to, to go and to visit our missionaries or to be missional. And that is part of the Spirit-led church, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and in the context of, of where we can be. And we're empowered to be able to preach the gospel. But there's more than that. In the process of preaching the gospel, one of the things that the Spirit-led church is, is empowered to do is to deal with the deceptions that we find in the world. And if you go out into the world, there are going to be deceptions, aren't there? Is there some deceivers out there? Absolutely. And you're going to find when you get out of the four walls of the, the, the Christian bubble... Things get really weird really fast. So within this. So the Holy Spirit calls them out and sends them out with the church to preach the world, the word to the world. So being sent out, verse 4, the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and from there they went to Cyprus. Now, to give you an idea, I have a map that I want to share with you. I'm going to leave it up just to kind of point a couple things out as we read through this text. Antioch is right here. If you were to follow this coastline all the way down, Jerusalem's way over here off the map. But this would have been where Antioch and Paul was. They would have gone down to the coastal city of Seleucia here, as we read this. Then they go to the island of Cyprus. Salimus is here and Paphos here. So our reading this morning is going to take us from here to here to here to here. Listen to the text. It says, so being sent out... By the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Then they reached Salamis. They began to proclaim the word of God in every synagogue of the Jews, and that John with their helper. And so they were traveling. Now their goal was to, was to get there, but first, and again, you've got to keep in mind, they would have to travel 16 miles from Antioch to the port city. And again, Antioch is a big, big city. They would go to the, to the port city here, and from there they would sail across 60 miles to the island of Cyprus. Now, what was going on during that time? There was already Hellenistic Jews that had become Christians that had gone to Cyprus that was evangelizing. There was churches that were springing up, small home fellowships in that area, and Paul and Barnabas were going to Cyprus. Barnabas was born in Cyprus. Now, that should be a clue. 
when you go, you look for the natural connections that allow you to minister to those that are like you, that speak the same language, that you have that connection with. Why? Because they're going to be able to hear from you within that. And so as they, they would go down, they would seek to connect with these people. In fact, in Acts 11, 19 to 20, it says this. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in the connection with Stephen, that was when Stephen was killed, they went up to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch, Lucius and Simon, began speaking to the Greeks also and preaching the Lord. Why? Because they spoke the language. To be able to speak that language. Now you're bringing to them a, a teaching that is foreign to them. It's complicated when you're bringing a foreign teaching and you're speaking a foreign language, isn't it? So you need to be able to speak the language that is there. So landing in, in Salamis on Cyprus, they began to preach the gospel where? In the Hellenistic synagogues. Why? Paul was a Jew. And he is going to preach the Jewish Messiah to the Hellenistic Jews in the Jewish synagogue. Well, that's smart. So smart that Paul would pattern his ministry that way, and he would always go preach to the Jews first. Also, it was part of Jesus' commission that the gospel should go to the Jews first, then to the Gentiles. And he was following that. And he had this great open door. The Holy Spirit will lead you to open doors. As you are ministering, and speaking the Word of God, speak it in such a way that people can understand, that you can connect with, share with them, because why? They're in the darkness, and you're bringing in that light. So, so share with them who Jesus is and what God has done in your life, and be relatable. And so for Paul, who was a Jewish Pharisee, teaching in the synagogue, that's his wheelhouse, isn't it? To be able to go in. But what was he doing? He was bringing the full gospel, not just the law. And the Jews were already spiritually sensitive to the concept of a Messiah, were they not? So you have a Jew that is a, that's sensitive to the concept of a Messiah. And so Paul is saying, yes, you are looking for your Messiah. He came, and his name is Jesus. And to be able to preach that. But preaching the gospel also is going to encounter some deceivers. In verse 6, notice that they, they were preaching across when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, down at the tip. Now that's a long go. That was a 90-mile journey. That's a long... So they've gone 16 miles just to get on a ship. And then they traveled across the water. And now he's going to walk 90 miles. How many guys would walk 90 miles? Praise God for cars. But you think about that. That's motivated, isn't it? That's going out. And they would walk 90 miles along the coastline because there's actually a mountain range in the middle of Cyprus. And they would walk along that coastline. And as they were journeying, they came across a guy, a magician. And he was a false prophet. Notice it says in verse 6, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus. Now, who is this guy, Bar-Jesus? Well, his name, as the text tells us, is also Elymas, and he was a magician. 
That word magician in Greek is magos. And it is one that is used to describe a diviner. He's not a guy that pulls a rabbit out of a hat. That's not the kind of magician he is. Also, he would be similar to the Chaldeans who were astrologers. The Magi, you remember the Magi that came? They were astrologers, so they were part of this mystic. But this particular guy was more in line of a diviner. And he was one that was using cultic practices in order to influence the leadership. I'll let you think about that. Does that ever happen today? Maybe. So they come across this guy, this magician, this Magos. His name is Elymas, or Bar-Jesus. Why would he call himself Bar-Jesus? Bar means son of. Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus. Would there have been... The message from the Hellenistic Christians traveling the land talking about this Jesus, the Messiah. Could he have picked up that name in order to try to affiliate himself to gain some strength? There are people that are deceivers that will name the name of Christ, but they are sons of the devil. And you have to be very careful. How do you know the difference between one who is a Christ follower and one who is a son of the devil? I'll tell you in a minute. But we look at this, this Elymas, and he was what is called an influencer. Not that I know a whole lot about it, but I hear tell that there are some kids that think that they are going to become millionaires by becoming uh, Facebook or TikTok or whatever influencers. And what do they do? Well, they, they throw up stuff on the internet and they make lots of money on their clicks and their ticks and their whatever they do. To me, it's a whole waste of time. But the reality is this. This guy was an influencer of the pro-council for Cyprus within this region. Sergius Paulus. And you say, well, what does that mean? When Augustus had separated all the regions, he would put different people in charge. A pro-council, he was a civil leader. He would be kind of like a governor. Now think about this. You've got a governor who was ruling a land, the gospel is coming in to that land, and then you've got a, a demonically influenced influencer that is influencing the governor, and what is he doing? The text tells us he's trying to stop the gospel from coming in. As Paul and Barnabas are walking across, and Elymas, the deceiver, is presenting himself as a son of Jesus, a good guy, he really isn't. He's the son of the devil. And Sergius Paulus, this, this, as Paul would say, intelligent man. Why would Luke write that? Intelligent man. This tells us that intelligent people can still be influenced by demonic powers and deceived. It is a spiritual deception. You can be an intelligent person, super smart, but because you're in the darkness and the God of darkness is there influencing, you're going to buy it until what? Until the light comes. And so Sergius Paulus saw this guy, this magi, this diviner, as being his number one guy that's going to speak into his governing ability, controlling how he lays out the law and such things. And this Eliemaeus, we read here, is opposing Paul. 
Now, in verse 7, it says, The proconsul Sergius, a man of intelligence, this man summoned Barnabas and Saul, sought out to hear the word of God. He wants to check it out, open-minded. Elimaeus, the magician, was opposing them to seek to turn the proconsul away. Have you ever heard the term antichrist? When you think of antichrist, what do you think of? It's the devil, right? Do you believe that there is the spirit of antichrist in the world today? Absolutely. Not the definite article, antichrist. Although he could be alive right now, which I think is very possible. There is the spirit of antichrist that influences government within us. Anti means against Christ. In 2 Thessalonians, we read towards the end times when the, the Antichrist will appear, but does give us a description of the Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist that are around. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3-4 says this, Let no man in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now, you say, Carrie, why did you share that? Because of the first part of that. It says, this will not happen unless there is an apostasy that comes first. Are we seeing apostasy in the church today? A falling away. Absolutely. Does that mean that the Antichrist is here? It's a sign. Should we be ready? Yes, we should. Know the times and the seasons. So he's being in opposition of Paul and Barnabas. And the text says that Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, confronts him. Now, this is the key. Who called Paul to go into the mission field? The Holy Spirit. Who empowered him? The Holy Spirit. He comes on the scene, and the Holy Spirit, who has empowered him, now guides him to address this counterfeit influencer. It's important for us to understand, as I said, that Satan is the prince of the power of the earth. He is seeking to influence governments. Ephesians 2, 1-2 says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. According to what? The prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedient. Is the spirit of Antichrist in the world today? Yes. Who is he influencing? Everybody who is not saved. Everybody who's not saved is influenced by Satan. Second Corinthians tells us that Satan wants to blind people. Second Corinthians 4.4 4, In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that, or purpose clause, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. What is Satan doing? Not only is he influencing, but he is blinding people from seeing the gospel. You put the gospel, you share the gospel clearly to them, and they're like, I don't see it. I don't get it. Why? Because Satan is blinding them. Thirdly, Jesus came to judge and to cast out this ruler of the world. John chapter 12, verse 31. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world, note, will be what? Cast out. 
Why do we need to be on mission? This is why. Why do we need to take a stand? This is why. People are walking in darkness and they're being deceived and they don't even know it. And until light comes in, the deception will continue. Yet the Spirit empowers believers to confront this. Paul, filled with the Spirit, seeing, Sir, seeing Elimaeus and seeing what he's doing to Sergius Paulus, now is Spirit-led and indignant. It is important to understand this is not Paul's attitude in himself. This is a Spirit-led judgment where the Holy Spirit gives him insight. And he gives him five insights that he declares upon him. Notice what he says. You are full of deceit. You are full of fraud. You are a son of the devil. You are the enemy of all unrighteousness. And you will not stop or cease to corrupt the ways of the Lord. See, that's pretty harsh. Those are not very politically correct terms. LMAS might be a little offended by that. So what? This guy was messing with Sergius Paulus's salvation. Remember, he said, I want to hear the Word of God. And Elimaeus says, no, you don't want to hear the Word of God. And Paul says, you're going to get shut down. And he does. But he doesn't do it in his own strength. He does it as he's led by who? The Holy Spirit. That's imperative. It is not your opinion that matters. It's God's opinion. And you need to follow that pattern. It is reminiscent of the sudden judgment of Ananias and Sapphira, isn't it? When they came in and they tried to deceive, Peter looked at them and he was what? Led by the Holy Spirit and judged them. And they dropped dead. Every now and again, I wish I had that power. But then the Holy Spirit would have to lead, so... You've ever had a conversation with somebody where God's given you the opportunity to be able to share with them truth? And sometimes it's hard truth. Don't shy away from it. Embrace it. If it's God-led, you are the conduit that needs to speak that truth. And you need to call it out and not shy away from it. I think the Christian church has lost its calling and the empowerment, and we have done that because we don't spend enough time with God to be empowered and to get that direction. And so what does he do? Paul says this, you're going to be blind for a while. It's interesting that the punishment fits the crime. What was Elimaeus doing? He was trying to blind the eyes, the spiritual eyes, of Sergius Paulus. And he says, you are a deceiver in keeping him in blindness. Therefore, you will be blinded for a while and have to be led around by the hand. Now, was that being mean? Do you remember what happened to Saul when he saw Jesus? Wasn't he blinded and had to be led around? There is this element of compassion in the judgment so that perhaps Elimaeus would come to faith. Nevertheless, he doesn't hold back on the discipline and the punishment. And so the punishment does need to fit the crime. You are trying to blind people, therefore 
you will be blinded. Why? Because you are trying to keep them in the dark, and light and darkness cannot coexist at the same place. The thing that is most impressive about this is this. Sergius Paulus is watching this. Sergius Paulus is watching the most intelligent spiritual person in his realm get shut down. And he's blinded. And Sergius Paulus, who has heard everything about the power of the gospel to transform life and how great Yahweh God is, says, yes, now I believe. And he believed as a result of that. On a side note, is discipline and corporal punishment instructive? The answer is absolutely yes. Paul brings this about to open the eyes of Sergius Paulus, and he believes. As the text tells us, he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. When we speak truth, and truth in love, and when we speak as the Holy Spirit leads, the Holy Spirit transforms lives. And within this, we see that the Spirit-empowered church does answer the call, and should, to preach the gospel. That's your role. That's your job. And the people around you are going to continue to live in darkness until you speak the truth. Share Jesus with them. And if they're in sin, call it out. In love, but call it out. And encourage them to come to that place of faith. And if someone is deceived, bring light into that darkness of deception so that they'll see Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you've empowered your church to speak the truth. You've empowered your church to preach the gospel. And you call the church to go. Lord, may we be missional in every aspect of our life. Whether it's school, work, home, church, wherever that we are at. May we continue to focus on mission. Lord, we would ask that you would empower us even now. That Holy Spirit, even as we finish out this service, that you would speak to our hearts and you would commission our lives to go and to preach the gospel and to confront the deceptions of the world, not based on our opinion, but based on your truth, God. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. Everyone needs compassion, love that's never failing, mercy, Father. Everyone needs forgiveness, the kindness of a Savior, the hope of nations. Savior, He can rule the mountains. My God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save forever. Light and the 
light of the world. Let your light shine through us as we go out and preach the gospel. That darkness would flee. Lord, help us to understand the calling on our life and embrace it. Lead us, Holy Spirit, we pray. And may everything we say and do make you smile. We praise you and we thank you for this morning in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen and praise Jesus. Have a blessed week. Don't forget the potluck too. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.